you uh, take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Revelation, please. The book of Revelation. Several years ago, maybe maybe two or three, I um, was in Revelation chapter 4. And on that Sunday, uh, Vanderbilt had um, was um, had a perfect season going. It's very early in the season, but they um, they were winning, and I felt then that was one of the signs of the apocalypse. And so um, I should uh, preach from Revelation. Well, it's Christmas. It's the second Sunday of Advent, a season in which our hope in Christ is renewed. And preeminently, the book of Revelation is a book about hope, hope that is anchored and rooted in Christ. The revelation to John is filled with hope, a necessary hope to encourage embattled believers, those who follow Jesus, to find renewed hope in Jesus' sufficiency. John needed renewed hope. The gospel of John refers to him as the beloved disciple, the beloved disciple. He was the one who leaned closest to Jesus at the Last Supper. He's the one to whom Jesus entrusted his mother as Jesus, hanging from the cross, gave to John the right and the privilege to care for Mary. And now John finds himself an aging apostle chipping away at a rock quarry on this island called Patmos. It was a prison colony of the Roman Empire, about 65 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. Then it was Ephesus. And so John needed renewed hope because now he's isolated and stuck. The seven churches of Asia, those to whom the letter was originally sent, they're identified in the text that we will read this morning. They also needed renewed hope. They were in a battle for faith, a raging battle, and it varied according to the location and the context. Some faced incredible physical threats to bully their silence, to bully them into silent witness and a silent worship of the risen and reigning Jesus. There are some churches in the world today in Muslim countries where they still face that kind of threat. There are places in Africa where those who follow Jesus have their hands and their feet lopped off so that they are maimed for life And they are examples to all in that country and in that community of the cost of following Jesus. They needed renewed hope. The church not only faced great physical threat, but some faced the soul-numbing tendency of material affluence. They were saturated with abundance and it numbed them to the true riches that are found in Christ. And then there were still others in these seven churches that faced the Steady and daily pressure of cultural accommodation. The kind of accommodation that blunts the sharp edges of the gospel's truth. That says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We still face those same things today, 200 decades later. There are many of us that we may not face a physical threat, but we face the threat of being silenced in the workplace. When we're called upon to pray, there's that unseen Anxiety of invoking the name of Jesus in a pluralistic context. There's the challenge of being passed over for a promotion because our ethics don't exactly match up with the company profile. There are some of us, we're here from a college campus in which we find incredible pressures to remain sexually faithful to the calling of Christ upon our lives. Enormous pressures. 
And there are some of us, and we find it less and less with every passing week, that know that affluence can numb us to the depth of our spiritual need. In cultural accommodation, it's as close as your iPod or your remote. I was in Subway recently standing in line behind two young ladies that I would imagine were of high school age as they were singing along with Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl. So cultural accommodation, it's alive and well in the 21st century. They needed renewed hope in Jesus' sufficiency. And many of us find ourselves today in a season of life in which we as well need renewed confidence and hope in Jesus' sufficiency. Each week I have the privilege of receiving prayer requests that many of you turn in. And we as a staff pray over them. We were, uh, some of us were in the prayer room this morning at 845 praying for your needs as well as for the Lord to be honored in the ministry of God's word and in worship this Lord's day. And each week as I look over those prayer requests, the family crises, the health crises, the crises in the workplace are challenges to the sufficiency that we find in the Lord Jesus. But I know there's another unwritten list in this room as well. There's a list that's so intensely personal, that's so intensely private that you dare not put it on a piece of paper And share it with another person. But it's there. And it makes you more desperate than anything that you would put on a piece of paper. Some of us, our our marriages are hanging by a thread. We're on the brink of separation, if not divorce. Some of us are, are in the red. Not in the black, but in the red. And we're not sure we're going to make it. Some of us in recent days and weeks and months have received a very grim prognosis. It came out of nowhere. That spot on the CAT scan or the ultrasound now alarms us. And we don't have the promise of next year. And so many of us today need renewed hope in Jesus' sufficiency. And some of us may be so desperate. And I tell you honestly this morning, there have been seasons of my life where I was so desperate. That I have said either audibly or in my heart, where are you, Jesus? Where are you in all of this? Where are you? And for all of us today who need renewed hope and confidence that Jesus is more than sufficient for us, we find it in this text in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9 and reading all the way through verse 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. 
and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The magic eye craze swept across our nation in the 1990s and continued in the early 2000s. You could find uh, posters in the mall that had the crazy eye phenomenon emblazoned on the front of it. You could find the, the, the magic eye appearing on lunch boxes and screensavers and mouse pads. And you could find it in comic strips and sitcoms and movies. It was seemingly everywhere. And you may say, well, I don't know what the magic eye is. You've seen it. It's a stereogram invented by Chris Tyler. Uh, somewhere near the, the late 1970s, the early 1980s. And it's an image that's embedded in seemingly random patterns. When you first look at the picture, you don't see the embedded image. But as you fix your eyes in a certain way, the patterns give way until you see an image. And once you've seen the image, you no longer see the pattern. You can't see anything but the image. John's writing in a context that's very grim. There are horrific challenges to these early followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm certain, like you and like me, they were wondering, where in the world is Jesus in the midst of this? And many of us find ourselves in situations where we wonder the same thing. Where in the world is Jesus in the midst of this? And yet this text tells us exactly where Jesus is. He's standing in the midst of his church. He's standing in the midst of his people as the risen Lord reigning in unrivaled grace and power. And John falls at his feet as though he were dead in his presence. The challenges John faced on Patmos have not changed. They've just changed name and location. But we still find ourselves in desperate need of Jesus' grace and power. And the pressures bearing down on us as the followers of Jesus have not changed. But Jesus is present in grace and power among us as well. The text tells us that he is. The text tells us that he's with his gathered people wherever they meet. The same Jesus, the risen and powerful and awesome Jesus, who rules in unrivaled power and majesty, is with you and he's with me. He's present because we are his people. In the upper room prior to his crucifixion, Jesus promised that to his disciples. He said... I will not leave you comfortless. Or some translations say, I will not leave you as an orphan. I will come to you again. And he did. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28 and verse 20, he promises that I will not leave you, but I will go with you always, even to the end of the age. And now some 40 years later, John beholds him on the island of Patmos. No longer Jesus meek and mild, but a bold Jesus ruling and reigning in power and majesty and yet still present with his people.
And I tell you this morning, because Jesus is with us, because Jesus is present with us, because Jesus is present with his people, it's there that we find renewed hope in his sufficiency. How do you find hope in the midst of your struggle? How do you find hope in the midst of challenges that would extinguish the last ember of a glowing hope and faith? How and where would you be renewed in hope? I would suggest you find it in this text because Jesus is present with his people. We find that kind of renewed hope in his word. And that's where the text opens. It opens with Jesus uh, appearing to John while John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Washington Times recently, uh, after the election, carried this byline, Victory Signals Renewed Hope. Victory Signals Renewed Hope. But I need something more substantial than an election to sustain me. I need something more than a newspaper headline to encourage and sustain me. I need something more substantial than the consensus of the American people to sustain me. I need a hope that is rooted and grounded in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suspect you do as well. And we have that kind of hope. And it's found here in the words of this text. When we turn to Jesus in his word, we hear his voice. Look with me again at verses 9 and 11. John hears a voice speaking with him and it sounds like the blast of a trumpet. It's filled with power and authority. I've never heard the voice of Jesus speak audibly. And I'm guessing um, none of you have either. But we do hear the voice of the Lord and we hear the words of Jesus speak to us through these pages. Dr. Young is very fond of saying this is like the mind of God is black words on a white page. This is the voice of Jesus like black words on a white page. And we hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us. And that which is forever settled in heaven and earth. His word becomes for us a a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We hear the voice of Jesus speak to us. John did. And that's inscripturated. It's recorded for us. And you'll notice his voice in the text pierces like a sword. Verse 16, John said, when I saw him, I saw a sharp two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. It's a metaphor for scripture. It's a metaphor for the word of God that comes from Christ. It's the kind of word that pierces our hearts, that convicts us of sin, that shapes and changes our behavior, that calls us to repentance. It's the kind of word that renews us to our confidence and our hope in Jesus. His word is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to pierce and lay bare the motives and intents of our hearts. It exposes our hearts before Him. There's nothing hidden from Him. He knows the word on our tongue before we speak it. He knows our thoughts. It's all there before him. And as we hear the voice of Jesus speaking in his word, it begins to shape and change our thinking. It begins to clarify our motivations. It begins to redirect the priorities of our lives. And so as we open the scripture and we hear the voice of Jesus, we find that our hope in him and his sufficiency is renewed. One of the One of the leading purposes of the Holy Spirit's ministry is that he would turn a searchlight or a floodlight upon the person and work of Christ. In the upper room in John chapter 14 and again in chapter 15 and yet again in John chapter 16, Jesus said, when the spirit of truth is come, whom I will send from my father when he's come, 
He will take that which belongs to me and he will show it to you. And one of the ways that we discover afresh the sufficiency of Jesus is simply by opening the word of God and beholding his sufficiency as it's revealed to us. And his word begins then to work in us. It begins to shape our thinking and transform our behavior. And the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to every aspect of our lives. It's not that the Spirit of Christ takes us beyond the cross, but He takes us ever more deeply into the cross so that we find hope. No matter what we're in, no matter our circumstances, no matter what we're facing this morning, we find hope in Jesus. And we open the Scripture then to meet Jesus. We open the Scripture to find Christ there. The, the, the Bible is not necessarily a book given to personal management. It's not a book that's been inspired to help us manage our idols better. It's not a book that's principally given just for information. It's not a book that's given for varied kinds of information like how many angels are able to stand on the, on the head of a needle and those kinds of things. It's not a book that's given to satisfy curiosity. In fact, I would go a step further this morning and suggest to you that the book of Revelation is not primarily given to engage us in idle eschatological speculation, to satisfy our curiosities about how this is all going to end. The book of Revelation is principally given to people who are struggling for faith, who are just about out of hope because the challenges are so large, the challenges are so great. This is a book that unveils the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ risen in awesome power and reigning in unrivaled majesty. And it's in this book that I open and I see him and there feed upon his grace and upon his riches. I go to the scripture to meet Jesus afresh, to have his words bathe my heart and nourish my soul, to open the eyes of my understanding and to see life through a different lens and a different perspective. I recently heard an astounding statistic. The average follower of Christ, the average church member, church attender, and of course we're all above average this morning. We're here for the first service. The, um, the above average um, church attender spends about 2,000 hours a year in church. We will be exposed however, to 15,000 hours of commercials. 15,000 hours of commercials. And so, do you need your hope renewed today? Are you exposing yourself to the source that would renew your hope? Is your heart being nourished in the words that sustain and revive hope? The one voice we really need to hear to encourage our hearts, speaks in the pages of this book. Do you take time? Do you have time? Do you find time? Do you make time to hear him speak? If your hope would be renewed in Christ, I urge you to open this book and see his sufficiency. We find his presence in the word. John tells us in verses 12 and 13 that he follows that voice and he turns and he sees the voice and he begins to describe the voice. But first he says, he says the voice is standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. 
And in verse 20, those seven golden lampstands are defined as being the seven churches to whom the letter was addressed. As he turns and he sees those seven golden lampstands, what he in reality sees is that Jesus is standing in all of his power and all of his fullness and all of his sufficiency among his people. And so when you and I gather on the Lord's day, it's not a stretch to imagine that Jesus is inhabiting our praises. It's not a stretch to imagine that his spirit is enlivening our worship. It's not a stretch to imagine that when we gather in our grace groups this evening that Jesus is present in power to minister to one another in fellowship and in prayer and in our sharing. Where in the world is Jesus? He's in the midst of his people. Where in the world is Jesus? He's in the midst of his church. And he's present to sustain our faith, to correct our sin and to commend his promises of grace. We're obviously not going to read the seven churches that received this letter this morning. We're not going to go into chapters 2 and 3. But if you and I were to read them, we would discover that Jesus has a, has a personal, comprehensive, and precise knowledge of what's taking place in the lives of his people in each one of those local congregations in those seven churches in Asia. The number seven, the seven churches, is really symbolic. There were literally, historically, seven churches of Asia. You could find them on the map. You could visit the ruins of some of them today if you were inclined to do so. But the number seven signifies completeness and fullness. In other words, what is implied here is that Jesus knows what's going on in the lives of his people. He's personally acquainted. He's cognizant. He's aware comprehensively. And because of that, he's able to correct our sin. He's able to call us to renewed hope and faith. He's able to speak to us in our times of need and dependent upon him in our situations. There's an illusion of being alone. John has an illusion of being alone on the island of Patmos, a rock quarry, an aged apostle, now seemingly abandoned because he had followed Christ. But he's far from alone. Jesus is there in all of his power and sufficiency. You may recall the story of Elisha's servant in the Old Testament, Gehazi. He went out one morning early and he looked over the, looked over the, uh, the, the ledge of the, of the home in which they were staying and he saw that the Syrian armies had surrounded the city. They were there to arrest and apprehend Elisha, the prophet of God. And Gehazi goes back to Elisha and he says, Master, we're surrounded. Elisha, there's no way out. We're surrounded. And Elisha, the aged prophet, says, Oh, Lord, open his eyes and help him to see. And he says, Go back and look again. And so Gehazi goes back and he looks again. And he sees that the hills are filled with chariots of fire as the angels of the Lord surround those who seemingly surround them. I'm telling you this morning, if Christ would open our eyes as we read this scripture, we would realize that his promise is indeed true. He has not left you. He has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. He is present in power and fullness to renew your hope and your confidence, to steal your faith, to fortify your courage. But we would not know that unless we open the pages of this book and behold him there. 
Hope's renewed as we hear his voice, as we find his presence. And our hope is renewed as we see his authority revealed in his word. What follows is John's description of the majestic Christ. And these are symbols. It doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus literally has a sword protruding from his mouth. It doesn't necessarily mean that that um, he's uh, gray-headed. It doesn't necessarily mean that his feet are like burnished bronze. These are ripe, bright, and vivid symbols declaring to us the majesty and the glory and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he beholds him and he sees his authority as our priest. He sees his authority as our prophet. He sees his authority as our king. Jesus had said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go in that power. Matthew chapter 28. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, the father has committed all authority to me. And someday all the dead are going to hear my voice and come forth. The Father has committed the authority to judge to Jesus. And someday Jesus will say, depart from me for I never knew you. And those so commanded depart into a place beyond hope. A place that's an everlasting fire that's never quenched. A place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. A place of unspeakable horror. Such is the authority of Jesus. But in the lives of his people, he empowers us. He cleanses us. He sustains us. And he governs all that touches our lives. And all of heaven in this book worships the risen Jesus and says, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who is alive forevermore. And my heart and your heart today responds with worship and says, Worthy is this Jesus to receive glory and honor and power and dominion both now and forevermore. This is our King. This is our Savior. This is our Redeemer. And our hope is renewed as we look to Him in faith. USA Today carried a byline recently, When He talks, people listen. When He talks, people listen. He makes $100,000 per speech, and it generally lasts 45 minutes to an hour. It's the 81-year-old retired former Federal Reserve Chairman, Alan Greenspan. Alan Greenspan makes $100,000 to stand on a platform and to talk for an hour, and even his pauses still rattle the markets. They rise or fall with every inflection of his voice. Well, I tell you, there's one greater than Alan Greenspan who speaks to us. There's one who's full of majesty, who's full of authority, whose presence radiates victory. And we open the pages of this book and we hear him speak. And we find our hope renewed in him. In the front of my Bible, I uh, have four index cards. And each one of those cards has a verse from Psalms. And... Um, and it, the acronym would be IOUs. IOUs. And, and I pray this. And I, sometimes I go to bed in my mind praying this. And sometimes when I'm up early in the morning, I pray this. And here's, here's what they are. And I, I commend this to you. Lord, incline my heart to you. Lord Jesus, incline my heart to you. Open my eyes that I might behold your truth. 
that I might behold the riches of your grace and of your sufficiency. Unite my heart to fear you alone. Unite my heart to fear you alone. And then satisfy my heart with your goodness. Satisfy my heart with your goodness. I'd suggest to you this morning that as we look to the Lord in the Scripture, we find hope renewed in Him. Because Jesus is present with His people finally this morning, we find renewed hope and submission to His will. After John beholds this awesome vision, I mean, could you imagine you're on Patmos, you're, you're, you're struggling, you're barely getting by, and it's the Lord's day, and you're wondering if where Jesus is and if He's really present, and suddenly the Spirit of God opens your eyes and you see Him not only present, but you see Him more fearful, more frightful, more awesome, more majestic than you've imagined. I mean, He's standing before you with this long flowing robe and a golden sash. He's, his voice is like the sound of many waters. His eyes are like flaming pools of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. And out of his mouth comes this sharp two-edged sword. And his face is shining brighter than the noonday sun. If you saw that, what would be your response? Well, the text tells us John's response. Verse 17, he fell at Jesus' feet as though he were dead. All the self-will melted out of him. All the self-reliance melted out of him. All the false hope and personal ability was drained away as he fell at the feet of Jesus. And I'd submit to you this morning that our hope is renewed in Jesus as we too fall at his feet. As we submit our challenges, we submit our families, we submit our work, we submit our children, we submit our health, we submit it all at the feet of Jesus. George Mueller may be known by some of you. He was known as a, as a praying man. He started uh, six or eight orphanages in England and never took a public offering, never asked for money. He trusted the Lord. He was a man given to prayer. One of the things that Mueller said was that he determined over a course, a lifetime of seeking Christ in prayer is that prayer became for him not so much a means of obtaining his will, of getting done what he wanted done. But prayer became a means of accepting what the Lord willed, of accepting what his king willed and accepting it joyfully and gladly. We submit the challenges that overwhelm us to Jesus. We bow before him in surrender, even as John falls at his feet. And his invitation remains just the same for us today. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, who are burdened down with enormous cares. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Come to me, and I will give you peace. The promise remains the same, that when we come to His throne of grace, we obtain grace and mercy in our time of need. It really is true that as we cast our care upon Him, because He cares for us, we find more grace and more hope and more sufficiency than we would have imagined. And as we humble ourselves before Him in due time, at the proper time, according to His will and purpose for us, He brings us back up. He exalts us. And so this text says, To all who are weak and long for strength, all of us who are weary and long for rest, all of us who struggle and fail, And long for victory. 
All of us who are troubled, come to Christ. Come to Jesus. Come to Him in His Word. Come to Him in submission and surrender. All who've lost hope may come to Him for renewal. And as John falls at His feet, notice in verse 17 and the opening part of verse 18, it's there that He receives assurance. We receive assurance as we submit ourselves to the Lord. Fear not, Jesus says. How gracious of our Savior. How kind of our Savior. To say to a man who's so overcome by fear that he's fallen as though he were dead. And the risen and reigning king says to his servant, fear not. Do not be afraid. It's the first thing Jesus said after his resurrection to Mary gathered at the tomb. Mary, don't be afraid. It's the thing that he said over and over to his troubled disciples. Don't be afraid. He still speaks that word of grace to John. He still speaks it to you and to me. Fear not. Fear not. And the encouragement to be fearless has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. Fear not, for I'm the first and the last and I'm the living one. Fear not because I'm in charge. Fear not because I'm more than enough. Fear not because of who I am. And it's there at the feet of Jesus we receive fresh opportunity for ministry in places that we would not have imagined. Jesus says to John in verse 19, What you've seen, what you're about to see, what you've heard and you're going to hear, write it. Write it all down, John, and send it to the church. There are many of us today who've had opportunities because of our life's experiences experiences. To share out of those experiences the hope and grace that we found in Jesus. And as we yield and submit ourselves to him, there are opportunities that yet will be given to us to share the hope and grace that we found in Jesus. Many years ago now, when I was in seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, I love the change of seasons. I'm not overly fond of really, really cold weather. But I do love the change of seasons. And many years ago now... I went to the little supermarket beneath or or just past the townhouses in which Melinda and our children were living. And when I got down there, I found long lines, lines that stretched all the way down the aisles. I went to the, the, the cooler to pick up milk and it was bare. I went to the bins to buy bread and they were bare as well. And so I got what I could get and I'm standing in line and I said to the lady in front of me I said what is going on and she said oh haven't you heard the weather it's going to snow and I said no I I didn't know that she said oh they say bad weather's coming and as I'm standing in this long line and I'm looking around at all of these people with their carts and their baskets with Bread and milk and the necessities, you know, the stuff you get when you're in a hurry and just to kind of get you by. This thought dawned on me. What if I believed this word? What if I believed the promises of Jesus? What if I took the master, the redeemer, the king at his word like we're taking the weatherman's report? What a difference it would make in my life. What a difference it would make in how I looked at life and how I lived my life. 
What a difference it would make in how I looked at challenges to my hope and my confidence in Jesus' sufficiency. Well, with all due respect to weather men, and we have a very popular and a good one here at Gracie Van. There's a greater one who speaks to us in the pages of this text. And in this text, we hear his voice. We see his presence. We witness his matchless authority. And our response to all of that is to fall at his feet and say, Lord Jesus, I give it all to you. I surrender. I surrender it all to you. That's our hope. Because he's our sufficiency. Our Father, as we bow before you in prayer this morning, undoubtedly there are many of us today who feel like we're hanging by a thread. And I pray that you would use this text in John's revelation to encourage the hearts of your people today. Holy Spirit of God, the one who breathed this book into existence, would you search us today? Would you... Reveal to our souls, to the good of our souls, to the encouragement of our souls, the grace and glory that's found only in Jesus. Granted, Father, for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.